Entering the hive of scum and villainy. I love democracy. The old sentence will no longer be of any concern to us. My allegiance is to the Republic, to democracy! Rebellions are built on hope. Your focus determines your reality. Luke, you're going to find that many of the truths we cling to depend greatly on our own point of view. Hello, and welcome to Beltway Banthas. It's the Star Wars podcast live from the hive of scum and villainy right here in our very own galaxy, Shire Force Base, South Carolina. Or at least it is this week. Uh, I'm your guest host, Riley Blanton. Normally, I'm just producing the Beltway Banthas podcast. But today, I have the privilege of introducing a great conversation that Stephen had on the uh, economics of Star Wars. Uh, specifically, he talks to Professor Matthew Rosu and Bailey Hackenberry of Susquehanna University and uh, talks about all of the various economic concepts that are represented throughout the saga. Uh, it's a really fascinating conversation. I had a really great time editing it just now. Um, so stick around as they dig in uh, and get nerdy on the details of all things macroeconomics, microeconomics. Uh, man, it was, a, it, was a, it was a fun time, great conversation. And so without further ado... Enjoy the episode. Them earlier, we've now got here Matthew Rosu, a professor of economics, and Bailey Hackenberry, Padawan learner at Susquehanna University. Guys, it's really great to have you on. Thank you so much for coming on Beltway Banthas to talk economics and Star Wars with me today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank yeah. you. This is going to be a really fun adventure. Um, your website, economicsofstarwars.com, is quite a journey. And it's really fun if you care about the way that the world works. And the reason that I say that is that I, I love the concept because there is this debate in the world of economics, and you can phrase it much better than I can, but basically that there are either natural laws of economy, sort of cost and value, and that our economics are, are sort of built into who we are as people, or that our economics are a construct that we are created, um, that we've created the world that we sort of live in, and we live within those confines and those rules, that supply and demand and opportunity costs and all these things are things that we've made up. And I've always come from the school of thought that these are more natural laws and that they just sort of, they are. Now, can you tell me a little bit about how you approach this project and thinking about how to use Star Wars as a way to explain these laws and whether or not you think they are with us naturally or they are constructs that we live in? It's a good question. And actually, I don't know what Bailey's response would be to the, to the construct answer. So the general idea on approaching the project was simply over the past maybe eight to 10 years or so, uh, I've spent a lot of time thinking about what are the best ways to help people to learn economics. As a professor of economics, I love economics. And I certainly would think um, that these are kind of natural laws that help um, economic laws are kind of basically laws that govern the world. And so that, that would be certainly where I come from on this. But in terms of where the site came from, I honestly, that wasn't so much of my thinking. And Bailey, maybe, maybe it was part of your thinking. It was more, where do we see examples of behavior that we think about that really help illustrate economic issues or problems in one of the most beloved movie franchises of all time. Yeah, I absolutely agree, um, especially with the uh, the law, the natural law. I think because economics is something, as we'll uh, talk about today, is something that you do almost subconsciously uh, throughout your choices. You like everyone from the day that you're born, as soon as you can make your first decisions, it, a lot of times has to do with um, something as, as simple as opportunity cost, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but. Um, as far as the, the reasoning for the website, I would definitely say and how we fit economics into Star Wars is um, 
as like, especially for me as a student, uh, not for me particularly because I, I enjoy economics, but for some students who don't really enjoy economics, it's, it's really interesting to see these concepts that you're learning about in class in something such as a, a movie that you may really enjoy or a TV show or even a song that you're listening to. So it really just makes it a lot easier to learn. Yeah, I, I, I definitely think that's true. And I, I gather based on you know the way that you constructed this website, and, and you guys have touched on it here, that you view economics as intertwined with nature. So Star Wars contains those lessons on nature, whether it aims to or not, like <laughs> sort of detached from the, the ideas of what the creator might have tried to put into Star Wars. These laws just are when it comes to economics. One of my colleagues, Professor Alex, Alexander Salter was just in a Twitter feud uh, with Paul Krugman over an op-ed that he had written in the Wall Street Journal about the idea of price theory sort of losing losing luster uh, in Washington, D.C. As it, as it pertains to public policy, uh, and that data uh, and data science was basically overtaking uh, what he views to be the correct way of formulating policy and thinking about economics, which is price theory. And Paul Krugman did not like it very much. And it sort of it sort of opened up a uh, a conversation there to be had about like, you know, basically, do we just sort of live in a certain set of rules? Or is it like the force? It surrounds us. It binds the galaxy together. It just is. Um, and not to break things down into light side versus dark side, but that's what I never really understood about economics as a political science guy myself was that you're not really talking about sort of like these like made up rules. It's people sitting down and trying to come up with a theory about nature and the way that it is. No, that's fascinating. And I remember I've, I saw that um, I, I, one of my favorite response, I think um, Alexander Salter wrote something like I'd like to thank uh, Paul Krugman for the most engagement I've ever had on an op-ed or something was was my was probably my favorite tweet of him reflecting on on that um, paraphrasing. But uh, no, it's a set of rules on that debate in particular. I mean, I think there are a set of rules that govern behavior, and I mean, you know, the the phrase "lies, damned lies, and statistics" is created for a reason. I think uh, data driven decision making is incredibly important, but if there's not kind of a guiding theory behind it to, to check on, does this really make sense or should we double check to see where there's some kind of interesting methods used to come up with these results? We really could be driven the wrong way. I think we probably should just dive right into Star Wars here. I know the people are hungry for it. So let's begin our journey through the saga and the lessons of economics that are baked within it. Let's start at the Phantom Menace. Episode one has many that we could get into. It's you know it's the movie that is made fun of for the trade routes. <laughs> but let's uh, let's begin with Watto and a matter of uh, debate over currency and determining value. There's a scene where Qui Gon Jinn is trying to get himself a, a hyperspace motivator or something to fix you know the ship that they have uh, landed on Tatooine. They need to get out of there, and he offers Watto Republic currency. To which Watto says, "Sing, witch! How's he gonna pay for all of this? I have twenty thousand Republic dactaries. Republic credits." Republic credits are no good out here. I need something more real. I don't have anything else, but credits will do fine. No, they won't. Credits will do fine. No, they won't. What, you think you're some kind of Jedi waving your hand around like that? I'm a Tidarian. My tricks gonna work on me. Only money. No money, no parts, no team. That's not gonna work, and he needs something more real. This sort of made my libertarian senses start to tingle. Can you tell me what the heck is going on here when it comes to economics that people should try to understand about value and currency? Um, yeah, so absolutely. This is, I would say, probably one of my more favorite clips that we have on the website. Uh, it's, it's teaching about monetary systems and different forms of money. So as you said, Watto doesn't want the Republic credits um, and he needs something more real. And I would say the best, um, the easiest way for people to understand this, to relate it to everyday life, would be thinking about the different values that we place on currency. So as a United States citizen, we have the, the U.S. dollar. Um, 
And, you know, you can walk into any store in, in the country and pay with a U.S. dollar and they're going to take it. But if you tried to walk into any store with something like a like board game money, like Monopoly money, they're not going to take that. You know, they, they want something more real, as Watto would say. Um, so I think that's that's kind of uh, a very simplistic way to understand uh, how how we value currency. Is money paper or does money actually have intrinsic value? Um, this is something that it's really easy to forget in day-to-day life. You know, if you were just to like fall into a bed of hundreds and hundreds of dollars, you'd be like, wow, this is this is the life. I finally made it. But it also is just paper. But if you were to fall on blocks of gold <laughs> and roll around, that might be something more real. Can you kind of talk a little bit about that debate at a high level? Yeah, that's it's it's a great point. Um, and he talks about republic credits. I mean, to to be honest, I, I don't know are were credits actually paper money. I mean, or is it more like Bitcoin? Right? You know, extending that. I mean, it's not even just monopoly money. I have a little bit of Bitcoin, not very much, but most stores around here won't take it. That said, there's a few places um, been known to perhaps make an online sports wager from time to time that. Bitcoin is the easiest way to make the transactions. Elon Musk today just sent the uh, the price of Bitcoin soaring because Tesla apparently bought like millions of dollars of it. But now you can, in some gas stations, use Bitcoin. I've I've seen it on the doors. Like, how the heck does that happen? Yeah, and, and you know, a lot of places here will not accept, say, British pounds, which objectively, a British pound is worth more than a U.S. dollar. But they, they simply won't accept them. You'd have to go through and trade. And I mean, one of the simple lessons we talk about in economics is the is in principles of macro is the question of what is money and like what makes for good money. Like cattle used to be used for money. And I would we would ask students, and this is something you could ask like a third grade class, which is part of the fun of using Star Wars for this, but why wouldn't we use a cow for money? Well, it's tough to bring around. It's not very divisible. And if it is divisible, it's no longer really the living cow. And I mean, like there's there's ways you can kind of use this to think about what is the, what are the properties of money. But the big the biggest property of money um, as a currency of exchange is that somebody else will also value it later. So you could give the money to somebody else in the future. I think that carries a lot of weight. It's one of, it's one of those subtle moments um where you just sort of pick up on a an actual very large scale debate um, that creeps into our public policy discussions and political debates all the time. Let's move on to episode two. So episode two revives the matter of droid discrimination when R2 tries to get near a food service line aboard a ship to Naboo with Padme and Anakin. No droids. Get out of here. Tell me a little bit about what caught your eye here, because there is something baked into discriminating against droids that tells us a little bit about business and discrimination against anybody. Yeah, so we see this discrimination against droids not only in in that we see it all throughout the series. It's it's in the Mandalorian as well. Um in the thing about like businesses is they can, as a um, free market society, can essentially choose who they want to do business with, um, or they can discriminate their prices, for example. Uh, so airlines do this all the time with the changing ticket prices uh, seemingly every single time you update the, the website. Um, so that's just like one example of discrimination that we see like, in businesses Um can you explain to me the, actually how that how that's a form of discrimination? I um I I don't actually understand how is changing price based on sort of demand a, a form of discrimination. So it's it's a different form of discrimination, and I'll kind of jump back on this, but it's considered price discrimination if you're charging different people different prices for the same product. So a common example would be airlines, which the seat costs them exactly the same amount. But if you buy it the day before in normal non-COVID times or a week before, it's going to cost you a lot more than that ticket than if you were two months before, because they're going to have an assumption that's correct. Most people buying things two months ahead are probably on a family trip or leisure travel, 
and are going to spend less than the person buying the ticket two days before. So it's it's a form of price discrimination on that. I think this this case, I think you could run almost a semester long course on this specific clip, though. Um, one thing that I find interesting on this, and there's a number of ways you could go there, but uh, Gary Becker won a Nobel Prize and a lot in part kind of coined the phrase, do firms have a taste for discrimination? And that if a firm wants to discriminate, um, whether it's hiring somebody who is less qualified, you know, for the same amount of money, you know, like they're saying, okay, their person is in a particular group I don't like, and I'm going to discriminate them against them. What it really is saying is I am going to pay somebody else less money uh, or I'm sorry, I'm going to pay somebody else the same amount of money, even though they're not as good. So like the firm is literally imposing a cost upon themselves when they choose to do this. And you see it in this case, right? If a firm is saying no droids allowed to get food, they're turning down that money um, in order to discriminate against droids. Now, the case where discrimination can actually be profitable for a firm is if other customers discriminate. So if, if all of the customers were like, we don't want droids here, then it may be a case where you would indeed see discrimination. So so the market sort of follows the culture and the people engaging in business transactions. And I'm not I'm not an economist, so I'm gonna be speaking completely student-like in layman's terms. But like the people who are living in the system, they can move what happens in business. You absolutely see this going on. I think when it comes to big business today and sort of uh, you know major companies, Nike, right, being pressured to take stands based on what they think their people want, they're going to get political on matters of you know Black Lives Matter, Colin Kaepernick, and they're sort of like making a bet about who, how much business can we retain and bring in based on people who buy Nikes already expecting a certain thing from us versus what are who are we going to alienate. Um, by taking this stand. Michael Jordan used to say that he doesn't talk politics because Republicans buy sneakers too. <laughs> I think that was a, an old line of his. And like, I, I think that's basically it, right? Like companies and brands can engage in kinds of discrimination that either bolster or, or tear apart their business depending on the culture. Absolutely. One of my, an interesting story that uh, Thomas Sowell um, wrote about, uh, pretty famous economist at, uh, affiliated with the Hoover Institute, wrote about how long before Rosa Parks, um, the busing system had been integrated when it was owned privately. Uh, and why was it integrated? Well, because the firms wanted to make money. They wanted everybody's money. There weren't the rules about where to sit in the bus. Well, when did those come about? They came about when the government took over. Why would that make some economic sense that that could occur when the government takes over? Well, the government doesn't pay the same price for discrimination that a private sector firm would face. So the people who owned the busing systems before the government took it over, they very well might have had prejudice, but they also wanted to make money, right? So like the profit motive in some ways, and you know, you mentioned libertarian tendencies, my libertarian tendency loves markets in the sense that markets will help to ease discrimination uh, because of the profit motive. There's, there is a strong incentive to do more business with more people. Um, and, you know, in terms of people who, who are more, you know, deferential to, you know, we all need to take action and make the world a better place. Like, you know, as soon as, uh, as soon as acting like discrimination um, and bigotry is uh, bad business in mass, well, then business is just going to change because they, uh, they are in this to make money. Uh, and sell to more people. So let's skip to Solo because episode three doesn't have much that I want to dig into here. And, and Solo just has so much. But there's a fascinating lesson that can be plucked from the movie's finale. So this film is chock full of all these lessons because here Han is talking to Kira about how they're going to basically screw over Dryden Voss in the coaxium deal at the very end. And Han says to Kira, we're going to win. You know, because they're gonna they're gonna pull one over on Dryden. It's not that kind of game, Han. The object isn't to win; it's just to stay in it as long as you can. You don't know everything. What does she mean there? Um, I think, in a literal sense, and what's the lesson there about playing the kind of 
high stakes games of value, trade, and bartering that Solo is engaged in all the time. Um, essentially, I mean, uh, you know, they, they both have different objectives. So that's kind of the takeaway from this clip is that Han, he wants to win. He wants to, you know, go in with the deal. They're trying to, uh, they're trying to make as much money as they can and, and get away and, you know, go live happily ever after together. Um, but that, that's not what uh, Kiera wants to do because, you know, she has, um, you know, she's like established something here with Dryden and uh, she has a job and she doesn't feel as though the, what Han's trying to do is maybe the best outcome. Uh, so essentially in, in game theory, it's always assumed that everyone involved in the game has the same, the same outcome or, or the same objective rather. And they're all trying to get to, to the end in the same way. Um, and another, another kind of um, assumption is that everyone plays by the same rules and everyone knows these rules. But in this, in this clip right here that we're, that we're discussing, um, you know, not everyone's playing, not everyone's trying to get to the same objective um, and playing by the same rules. And that's what makes markets so hard is, is you don't always know what the motivations are of every party involved. But sometimes there's a, a chaos agent in the transaction, <laughs> if you will, who doesn't really view winning the same way as the person on the other side of the bargain. Um, in which case, you know, there is a, a flexible price on everything. Um, you know, you don't. You, you can always move the price because someone might find value in an intrinsic way in a different outcome. Yeah, it's a that's a great point, and it's an interesting idea from a game theory point of view. You do generally assume that everybody knows the whole story behind this, and it's clear here they had different objectives and didn't know. The, that their objectives were different, which could be pretty fascinating if you're going into a bargaining situation, if you really don't know what the other person wants. Uh, but as you mentioned, that's absolutely what would create value in a marketplace, uh, right? I mean, why would we go buy a morning coffee from uh, Starbucks or Dunkin' if we didn't think the value of the coffee was more than what we were paying? However, of course, they're selling it to us for that price because they think the coffee is worth less than what they're receiving and they're happy to make the transaction, right? And we have different, there's different objectives in that and they're, you know, different, it re very much does relate to the idea of market transactions. I, I think that's really interesting. And if you could go back to just the very basics, what is the definition of game theory? Because I've heard it, people talk about it, but I actually don't know what it means besides just thinking about the market and, and trading as a sort of game. What is the definition yeah. of game theory? There are probably a number out there. When I the one I like best is game theory is a, a system used to study strategic interactions between entities. And I know that's, that's a kind of a broad based, uh, a broad based phrasing, but it's It's largely an approach on how to study how individuals would interact with each other as if they are playing a game. So like the, the more, more classic one is a prisoner's dilemma, which a number of game shows have, have tried to emulate, right? Yeah, and we'll and we'll definitely get to that. Actually, I think in the next one. So, looking at the the scenario in Solo, this isn't a perfect synopsis because I, I I'm going to blank on some of the the different characters' motivations. But you have Kira, who she wants to she wants to end this confrontation with Dryden Voss as the head of the uh, the crime family herself. She wants uh, to step up in leadership. Dryden wants the product so that he can make his boss happy. The, the, the coaxium doesn't mean anything to Dryden necessarily. He just has a deliverable that he needs to give to, to Maul, who is his boss. Han would like to have the money. He would like to have some money to maybe go buy a ship. But I think what really matters to him at the end of this is like, Kira. He, he wants Kira. Um, he wants to walk out of there holding hands with her and go off into the sunset, and it'd be nice to have some money. And then Beckett wants the money. That's what he wants. That's all he wants at the end of this movie. The rest of them all have these different things. Could you give me an example of game theory in like common life or like something that we might see in the news so that people can kind of take this down from like the Star Wars example to something that they might see any day. I mean, you mentioned earlier today, right? Like what are the different motivations for particular firms? 
for for some in we in the context of talking about how Tesla just invested a lot into Bitcoin, right? I think for for particular firms, earning money right now might be the the actual objective, right? I mean, there are some firms that are very well established that you know you could think of perhaps energy companies where their idea is earn as much money as possible, provide if you own the stock and then provide as large of dividends as possible. And, and that's the game. That's winning for the for that company. Whereas others right now, like Tesla, it might not be earning a profit right now. It might be thinking about how can we earn a profit a decade from now, uh, where different people have very different objectives when running different companies. What was it Milton Friedman said about the uh, the goal or like the only moral responsibility of uh, of corporations is to uh, to make money for their stockholders? Is that, that, a, that do I have that right? right? Yep, yep. That was Friedman. Yeah, yeah, and that is that is something that is very much up for debate in terms of what kind of capitalism we want to have as a society. Let's move on to another kind of game theory. This is Rogue One. So, Jin Erso has been captured by the Rebellion um, in the very beginning of the movie. In order to get into a room with Saw Gerrera uh, and get information from Mon Mothma, this super weapon. Given the gravity of the situation and your history with Saul. We're hoping that he would help us locate your father and return him to the Senate for testimony. Why can't the rebels have just approached Saw Gerrera himself without going to Jen? You actually say that there is an economic lesson baked into this scene and this situation. Yeah, absolutely. So um, essentially what is happening is that these are uh, two parties that have, that have similar goals. Um, they're both rebel parties. Um, so saw, um, is just, he's more extreme in his methods and that's kind of, that's what they even say in the clip saw is an extremist. Um, so with that being said, they, they have a hard time, uh, approaching him to discuss, you know, what, what the plan is. They can't really, uh, collude in any way because he is always trying to one up everyone else. And when, you know, when one party's trying to one-up other people, it, it kind of makes everyone else worse, worse off. Um, so they, they knew that, that Jin would be able to, to, to talk to him. Um, so in order to get the message across, they had to send someone that they knew he trusted. So I believe this is related to the prisoner's dilemma. Is that what this is? Yes, yeah. So the, the classic prisoner's dilemma, you'd imagine two prisoners are held in different cells and so the police go and interrogate each separately, right? And the they say, "Look, we've we've got you on this small crime, but if you confess and and give evidence against your partner, we'll get we'll give you even less time." Um, the problem is, is if they both confess, they don't need the other's testimony. So you're in a system where they they each actually have an individual incentive to confess, or in you know, in the case of the Star Wars clip, right, try to be more and more extreme and one up the other. But collectively, they would have been far better off if they both cooperated with each other. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. so kind of the classic prisoner's dilemma where you see it in businesses often would be, should businesses collude and try to charge higher prices, which which is, should caution, illegal in most countries. But, you know, if you have a duopoly in two different businesses, if they leave the prices high, they could both make more profits, closer to monopoly profits. Um, but each one has a little bit of an incentive to try to undercut the other, to try to get all the business. And, but when that happens, you might see a price war and they're both worse off. I'm trying to think of a, a, a political example, just because when you were talking about uh, a trading partner who is always trying to one up you, I'm trying to remember a specific example, but I feel like there are examples throughout the past four years of a uh, former president Trump where like it just him as like a manager and sort of like a, a hill negotiator and then also a negotiator with our, our trade allies and even places like North Korea um, for foreign policy purposes, like that he just was a tough guy to negotiate with because you never knew where he was going. He was always trying to move the goalposts um, as a president and as a trading partner. Am I? Do you feel like that's kind of correct? I'm just kind of going from my gut memory of what the past yeah. four years have been like. No, I think I think that's fair in uh, thinking about international trade in general. Uh, 
certainly if both if two countries are willing to openly trade with each other, they're both better off. If they're both restricting trade, they're both going to be worse off because you're not gaining the benefits of what the other country does well. Uh, with trade, there's a debate over if you have a restrictive trade policy and they're wide open, are you better off or worse off? I, I tend to think you're probably still worse off. You know, like if we put in these massive tariffs, essentially we're taxing our citizens and preventing us from buying less expensive products or higher quality products yep. at the same price from another country. So there, yeah, there is a debate the on whether Trump's economics. Yeah. Yep. yep. That is true. Yeah, I mean, it was just the idea that, like, if you if you are in a scenario where <laughs> they've got tariffs on you and you don't have tariffs on them, that you're a chump uh, and a loser. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and there's, you know, I mean, uh, the ideal world, right? There is a bit of game theory behind that too. Really, if you're thinking about it, if you want to try to defend those actions, if you threaten and they believe your threats are real, the tariffs, and you could get them to lower the tariffs, it might be the right game theory move. Um, mm-hmm. but it's, when you put in tariffs, you're, you're taxing your set, you're making products more expensive, uh, for your citizens. Now at the same time, right? Like the, the counter side to this is perhaps that might uh, boost a little bit of domestic production, right? Like it's not all loss uh, on this side, but usually any analysis on how much consumers are spending, for each job saved, the number gets really, really large, like way more than we would ever think is reasonable, like $300,000 for a job saved in terms of extra amount we're spending doesn't seem like a good trade-off. Yeah, this is this is why the economics of Star Wars website, economicsofstarwars.com, is just such a, a fun exploration to go on. Um, all of you listening out there should check it out. Uh, all of these different sort of examples are captured here on this website for you to learn about. And and all that discussion about trade was just jump-started by Rogue One, Saw Gerrera, and Jen Erso. Um, let's move on into the original trilogy, and we're gonna we're gonna reach the the finish line here. Um, a New Hope, Episode 4. So Luke really wants to go to college, or, or more so the Imperial Flight Academy to become a pilot. This is an interesting za- example of what you call opportunity cost. I'm familiar with this from work. We talk about it often. It's it's basically, in my understanding, looking at two business decisions that you could make, looking at the upside of each, or more so the downside of not going in one direction or the other. What are you losing out on? Did I capture that correctly? And how does that pertain to Luke's decision about whether or not to get his education now or stick around on the farm? Yeah, I think you, I think you got it pretty good. Um, the only thing that I would change is that opportunity cost doesn't necessarily have to be a business decision. Um, as I said earlier, um, this is something that we kind of learn at a very young age. As every decision you make, there's always a cost um, or an opportunity cost, at least. Um, so in this clip, um, Luke is, you know, he would like to go to the to the flight academy uh, this year, but his uncle wants him to wait an, an additional year. Um, that way he can stay at home, work on the farm uh, until they save enough save enough money to hire a few more farmhands. And so in this, in this case, the, the cost, the opportunity cost of Luke um, going to the flight academy is him staying on the farm and working. And uh, so the flight or the, the cost of him leaving, you know, they, they otherwise, if he left, they wouldn't have enough people to work on the farm. And it kind of, um, you know, that's kind of where it, it starts from. I yeah, thought then, the, um, the way what, that you would look at it was skills. Well, it's so it's the total of what you're giving up to get something. So at the beginning, right, to get this education, Luke had to give up helping out on the farm, which which was a big deal, right? I mean, it was clear they needed him. This year we'll make enough on the harvest that I'll be able to hire some more hands and then you can go to the academy next year. You must understand I need you here. But it's a whole nother year. Look, it's only one more season. Yeah, that's what she said when Biggs and Tank left. Where are you going? Looks like I'm going nowhere. I have to go finish cleaning those droids. Oh, and he can't stay here forever. Most of his friends have gone. It means so much to him. I'll make it up to him next year. I promise. 
Luke's just not a farmer, Owen. He has too much of his father in him. That's what I'm afraid of. Um, well, then what happens, actually, what he's giving up drops dramatically when he goes back with Ben and learns that his aunt and uncle have been killed by the Empire. All of a sudden, mm-hmm. there isn't that trade-off and this is really that that cost isn't money to luke right and necessarily i mean i know if he produces the crops right like they help i'm sure it's on uncle are selling them they don't go into those details but the the next best alternative dropped in value dramatically so the opportunity cost dropped pretty dramatically for luke here is there anything sort of being left on the table when it comes to luke's skills as a worker because i mean in the beginning of the movie he thinks he's going to live his life probably on Tatooine and that the Flight Academy, the Imperial Flight Academy, is maybe his only way out into the kind of life that he might like to have, which is one of adventure. Um, is there sort of a way to think about Luke's desire and and the, the ticking clock um, in terms of his need to get an education as soon as possible um, because he's sort of like dwindling in terms of his own value on the farm. Is that is that a, 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 a an angle of this in any way? Well, I think on the cost side, I don't know that it's as much of a cost as what are the benefits to getting the education. Um, the yeah. sooner that you'd complete your education, in theory, if you're going to work to, I'm going to just pick a number. If you're going to work to age 65. If you complete your education at age 21 versus age 31, that gives you a lot more benefits um, to to be able to that you should reap from that. And so mm-hmm. even if perhaps the cost is higher, it, it, it very well might be worth it to, to go through an expensive education. That makes sense. That makes sense. I think this next one's going to be pretty easy for you all. So we'll probably move through the Empire Strikes Back pretty briskly. So this scene is a lesson in specialization, I think. There's a plot point in episode five where Vader contracts five to six bounty hunters to capture the Millennium Falcon and our heroes on board. Now, there, this is after there have been multiple escapes by Han from the Empire. They just can't get this guy. Now, we see this kind of transaction that the Empire is making in our everyday lives pretty often. What is it? The... I think there's a bunch of ways you could go on thinking about this. One is hiring additional workers to get additional output is a general rule. Uh, in this case, the additional output is capturing you know, the Millennium Falcon. Uh, another interesting way to think about this particular clip is I don't think anybody who watches The Empire Strikes Back would think that Darth Vader would be worse at finding... Um, would be worse at bringing in Han Solo than anybody else. Um, at least I didn't, you know, and when I was, you know, when I was a kid watching this, I was like, well, Darth Vader is, you know, the bad guy he could go find them. However, he, he had an empire to run, right? He had other tasks to do, which were of higher value. Um, so ended up contracting it out, which is kind of a key behind how trade can happen. And it's this idea of comparative advantage. Trade happens when, Somebody yes. can do something for a lower opportunity cost, jumping back to opportunity cost. So the bounty Yeah, hunters, I was going to say, this is opportunity cost, isn't it? <laughs> they, they can't, the bounty hunters can't run the empire. Darth Vader can run the empire. But the bounty hunters can do a reasonably good job of going and finding Han. And so that's um, it's a good example of both the idea of hiring extra workers to increase your um, – to get what output you want – but also the idea of comparative advantage and gains from trade and gains from specialization. I love that. I love that. Hey, we all have to make decisions in our, our everyday lives um, about who is best suited to do a job and what we're going to have to give up in order to do something ourselves. I think about this often just in terms of home repairs and DIY lifestyles, um, You know, where yeah, I love yeah. to try to fix stuff to- occasionally. Yeah. Yeah, and you mentioned you had kids, right? Like I don't know that any of us would ever argue that our kids are better at say doing the dishes than we are. But at some point I'm like, okay, you're doing the dishes and I'll do these other things, right? Let's Exactly. That's the only reason that I have my daughter do the dishes and I pay her $10 a week to do that um every night and take out the trash 
because I really value having five extra minutes to put my feet up. <laughs> it is, it is, it is labor that is objectively not worth that much money, but it, it just is to me. And, yeah. uh, you know, that's economics, my friends. <laughs> Um, this is, this is the last one and, and we're going to wrap up on, on return of the Jedi. Um, and then, uh, we'll talk just briefly about your next project, which is going to be the Mandalorian. But I want to preface the, this segment by saying it is wrong to put prices on people and Wookiees, but for the sake of discussion, let's talk about return of the Jedi and a very notable criminal transaction that takes place on Tatooine. So in episode six, there is a scene in which I think, uh, you have Leia and Jabba engaging in pretty boring negotiations. And, and they're not very good negotiators themselves. It's a, it's a very predictable tit for tat in terms of bartering. So Leia is disguised as a bounty hunter. And she pretends to have captured Chewie and hand him over to Jabba. Jabba has offered 25,000 credits for Chewie. Leia, in disguise, comes back and doubles it to 50, to which Jabba gets very angry and asks why he must pay 50,000. Oh, you know. Because he's holding a thermal detonator. <laughs> and Leia says, because well, I have a thermal detonator, uh, pulls out pulls out a bomb, and that is why you're going to pay 50. In the end, they settle on 35 after a little back and forth. So I guess my question to you, just to kind of kind of be weird about it, is why 25,000? Why is that where Jabba started? Why wasn't it 80,000? Who gets to determine the worth of Chewbacca when it comes to a bounty on his head? There's, it's a good question. So I don't know, thinking about the determination of uh, Chewie's bounty – I can't speak to that, but in terms of the interesting, like on the clip, um, the interesting part for me on this one was the idea of in game theory um, or in negotiations, it's considered the best alternative to a negotiated agreement. Uh, and that'll often determine like each party, if, if you have to step away from the agreement, okay, you didn't settle on it. You're going with whatever is your next best alternative. Um, Leia really well, the bounty hunter, who we know is Leia, really changes this when she threatens to blow the place up, right? And, you know, it's before it's like, okay, I could get Chewy and I could get this particular price, or um, I could perhaps say no or bargain in some normal way, right? Uh, Jabba says, I'll pay 25. Um, you know, no, was it going to be any more? And Leia asks for 50. Jabba ends up increasing it when there's some probability that this seemingly mentally unstable bounty hunter might actually, you know, blow the place up. Uh, the alternative to the negotiated agreement got much worse for Jabba. Jabba wanted to make the bargain. The thing that I that I really find interesting is the the nature of the negotiations, how um, obviously in, in a real life situation, um, in a business situation, or even, you know, a discussion with, with a friend negotiating, uh, usually they're not going to bring violence into it. However, um, you know, the bounty hunters in Java, they have no problem bringing violence into it. Um, and this, this kind of sparks a discussion about institutions and how a lack of institutions, um, you know, in the, the, the market for people or the Wookiees in this case, um, you know, there are no institutions. So Java can't call the police and say, um, you know, this, this bounty hunter that has my, the Wookiee that I'm, I'm paying for is trying to blow the place up. Um, so that's another interesting point. Oh, you know, that actually work. reminds me of episode one when uh, when Watto tries to uh, to renege on his deal about freeing Anakin and Qui-Gon threatens, you know, to get the get the huts involved <laughs> because mm -hmm. that that literally was uh, about sort of a, a slavery situation in the market for people. Um, and there was a process. Uh, they, they had a deal and uh, Watto was going to go back on that. So Qui-Gon scared him by uh, bringing in the the real law on Tatooine, which is the outlaws. Bailey, that was a, it's a great point Bailey brought up on this one. If you think uh, relating this to you know, the U.S., why there are reasons many people, myself included, would like to see much more legalized drugs, and it is not to use them. Um, but we see a lot of violence surrounding drug deals because drug dealers – 
cannot go to authorities to resolve their disputes. So unfortunately, the disputes often go to violence in these particular situations. Yep, I uh, I work in I work in the libertarian policy world in DC myself, and uh, so since you already took the the drugs topic, you know, there's also the the subject of sex work um, and how to deal with that, particularly in the district. Um, and you know, the the argument goes something along the lines of if you want this bi- this business will always exist whether you like it or not. Uh, if you want it to be legal, safe, and uh, and work better in your communities, and not have people, you know, standing out on the street corners, you know, the red light district, that you need to actually legalize it and give it frameworks to work within, um, so that people can settle their disputes and business can happen um, in a way that doesn't need to be secretive and violent, uh, and things happen. Um, outside of uh, of the law and uh there's there's a case to be made there and it's not really moral it's it's economic correct absolutely correct yeah it's all around us folks economics surrounds us binds us binds the world together the galaxy together one day i'll get my uh, my quotes right um guys this has been a lot of fun i i've taken more of your time than i originally asked for so matthew bailey um i just want to give you sort of the final word on what you're doing with economics of star i know you've got some some projects here coming up involving the mandalorian because goodness gracious there's got to be a lot um, in that show that you can unpack for people. Tell me a little bit about the project, what's next, um, and uh, what we can expect from the website. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Go um, ahead, go ahead, Bailey, you can start. So uh, we have a lot of clips from season one, but we're currently working on getting some some clips for season two. Um, and one that, that comes to mind right in the first episode of season two is uh, when Mando goes to talk to uh, Gore Koresh I, I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but he, you know, they go to a fight and Mando is he's trying to get some more information to find other Mandalorians. And uh, there's two really interesting economics terms um, in this one clip. So one of which is the value of a life. Um, so uh, Gore, uh, Gore Koresh uh, essentially uh, shoots one of the, um, the, Gamerian, the the people fighting. He he shoots one of them. Gargantuan guards. Am I saying that right? right. Uh, I think yeah. I think yeah. it's gargantuan guards. But our uh, our host, I'm sure, knows better than I do. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so uh, he he shoots one one of the people fighting, and um, in in order to to get Mando's armor because of how valuable it is. So essentially, he values the armor higher than he values the, the life. Um, so governments find values for life all the time, especially which you probably know more about uh, making public policy decisions is, is something that they find the value for a life for. Um, and then the second really interesting um, topic that this clip kind of brings about is um, like how much risk, the risk tolerance, we call it in economics, someone is willing to take. Um, in this case, Mando is we would call risk adverse because when he's asked if he gambles, Mando says not when it not when it can be avoided. Um, so someone that that likes to gamble or likes to take the extra risk, they would be risk loving. Um, and then someone who would actually sit down and do the logical thing uh, based on what the math says with expected values, they would be risk neutral. But uh, Mando obviously risk adverse does not like to gamble. The value of the statistical life it sounds so morbid. But it's absolutely used by government agencies everywhere when crafting policy decisions, right? Like, why? How much money should be spent on um, some clean air policy? Well, part of how you would assess the value is: would it save lives, and how many lives would it save, and what's kind of the trade-off on this particular action? And really, good government decision, good government decision making in general, should be looking to save the the highest amount of number of lives for the lowest cost. Well, there you have it, Banthas. This has been a wide-ranging discussion on the economics of Star Wars. Um, I am so excited that we got to do this. I just want to thank you both one more time, Bailey Hackenberry and Matthew Rozu, um, both of, uh, of Susquehanna University. This was so much fun. I, I hope we can do it again in the future, particularly as the Mandalorian um, portion of your website starts to roll out. Uh, there, there will be a future for more economic discussions of Star Wars on Beltway Banthas. 
And that's going to wrap up another episode of the Beltway Banthas podcast. Thanks so much for listening. And a big thank you and shout out to uh, Professor Matthew Rosu and Bailey Hackenberry for uh, shining the light on some really interesting and I would say layered levels to the idea of economics in Star Wars. Normally, I just have thought of um, economics in Star Wars as the taxation of trade routes, and people make fun of the Phantom Menace. Like, that's literally the extent that I'd mostly really thought about it before. But it's really fascinating to see some of these concepts um, discussed through the lens of Star Wars. So uh, I had a great time editing the episode, listening back to Steven's conversation, and uh, I got two things for you guys. If you're still listening to the podcast right here at the end, uh, that means you're probably a, a, a you know you're you're enough you're enough of a Beltway Banthas fan that you're still around. So I want to tell you two things. One, make sure you subscribe to uh, Stephen's Politicize Me Substack newsletter. It's politicizeme.substack.com, and Stephen is putting out great, fascinating content that's well thought out, um, thorough, thoughtful analysis of Star Wars and the current times that we live in. Uh, his most recent piece is Rebel Scum Empathy versus Dehumanization, a brief look at how the Force can fix the world. Uh, as Steven's writing his book, hosting a TV show, he's a busy guy. That's why I'm actually doing the intro and outro this week, guys. <laughs> so uh, make sure that you uh, subscribe. It's uh, politicizeme.substack.com. That's number one. And number two, share the, share the podcast with a friend. That could be just... Um, forwarding this episode telling a friend about it uh, leaving us a rating and review on the apple podcasts app that's a great way to get the word out about the show uh, so to share the show with a friend um, you can also follow us at beltway banthas on twitter as well as at steven underscore kent 89 uh, to follow steven you can also follow me at the riley guy although i'm giving up social media for lent that's a that's a thing i'm doing so um, I'll, I'll respond after like 40 days. So that's a, that's a topic for another time. Turns out social media is a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a thing. It's a thing in Star Wars right now. Anyway, uh, the, <laughs> I should stop. I'm going to stop now. I'm going to end the episode. Thanks so much for uh, tuning in, guys. As always, may the Force be with you. And remember, oh, I'm, you're doing the Star Wars report out. Am I allowed to do that? Many Bothans died to bring you this podcast. Bye-bye now.